So the fall 2015 anime season is already almost two months underway, and now that I've climbed out of my cryo-sleep chamber that beams old Gynax shows into my head for weeks on end, I guess I'll give one of those seasonal charts a look. Alright, we've got One Punch Man. This is obviously gonna be cool as shit. Everyone's been hyping up the manga for years now, and the main character is like some kind of weird, melon-headed, bald superhero dude surrounded by wacky and interesting alien cyborgs and shit. Studio Madhouse is still pretty damn reliable when it comes to action shows, and the director is the same guy who led Space Dandy under Watanabe's supervision last year, which was probably the best-looking anime TV series ever made. Definitely gonna watch this one. Next, we've got some sequels to shows I didn't watch, some Silverlinks show I don't care about, and oh, look, an A1 Pictures show. Judging by this cover art, I'm guessing it's a light novel adaptation, not that I need to guess because it says so right there. Now, I realize I'm probably the only weirdo who feels this way, but it's been over three years since this studio put out a show that I actually liked. A time span in which the studio has released approximately 17,000 TV shows, and it happens that Suritama was directed by a dude I generally love anyways. Every time they make a show that seems kinda cool at first, I end up hating it by the end, and their visual aesthetic drives me up the fucking wall with how unappealing it is. My gut reaction when I see A1 Pictures and Light Novel is to stay the fuck away and never look back, which might seem a little closed-minded and dickish to people who don't get where I'm coming from. Justifying why I feel these stupid emotions is hard. It's not the kind of thing I can just explain away in one sentence or paragraph or informational video. It's not just one thing about these shows that rubs me the wrong way. It's a little bit of everything. Thing. So if I'm going to get to the heart of this and try to get you to appreciate my big dumb hate boner for this studio, then we're just going to have to watch this show together while I bitch about everything. Now before you leave a comment about how I shouldn't watch a show I don't like, or about how I'm an asshole for ragging on some show that people love, or whatever other reactionary comment you might be typing up right now, let me set some things straight. First of all, there are reasons to watch something other than enjoyment. In this case, the reason is a combination of intellectual curiosity and a desire to get this off of my chest. Secondly, there are plenty of people who ask me every day to talk more about shows that I don't like, and who love it when I help them to justify their own negative feelings towards a show. And just as easily as I could have decided not to make this video, you could have decided not to watch it. And lastly, this is literally my job. I make YouTube videos about anime, I don't do anything else. This is my life. So, now that we're all on the same page, let's head on over to Crunchyroll and fire this baby up. If you want to watch along with me, I recommend using this kick-ass Crunchyroll.com slash Digibro link to sign up for an account, because if you do, then Crunchyroll will literally give me $5. You can tell I'm serious, because if I wasn't, then I would never recommend this show to anyone ever. Before we actually click on episode one, let's take a look at that little poster they've got on the side to give us a sense of what this show's gonna be like. Every single thing about this poster puts me off immediately. We can tell that the main characters are in uniforms, since they've got the same color scheme and general look, which means that this show takes place in high school. Now, that's not a huge knock against the series, considering that like 95% of anime takes place in high school, but it brings along a set of expectations about what the setting and characters are going to be like. The uniforms are completely unrealistic and look nothing like anything that would ever be worn in a real Japanese school, and they've got this sort of sleek, almost sci-fi aesthetic to them, which means that this is not going to be just a high school, but a special school 
school for abnormal people. The fact that both characters are holding some kind of spectral looking weapon means that it's probably going to be a school where everyone has superpowers and which has some kind of school sanctioned battling going on for some stupid ass reason. Every season has at least two shows like this and the fall season has three which are nearly identical. Moreover, the girl's uniform has an unrealistically tight little miniskirt that would break the dress code at any school which actually bothered to have uniforms, along with sexy thigh-high stockings that show off just a few centimeters of flesh which are known as the absolute territory. The idea that she can position her legs like that without the skirt riding straight up and flashing her panties is a fantasy that only anime can create, but it puts into your head that surely if you watch the show, you'll get to see the rest. Her rather large breasts are very pronounced by the way that her chest is pushed out even though she's looking at a downward angle, so all of you at home, I'd like you to look down at something while puffing your chest out a little and see how that feels. Anyway, the point is this is going to be a fan service show. Both of the character designs are what I would describe as light novel default characters. First, let's take a look at light novel guy. What separates light novel guy from harem guy is the pointiness and swooshiness and possibly color of his hair. A typical harem guy or otherwise milk toast Yuji every lead dude has black hair, sort of like a bowl cut or just a drab boring look to him and maybe glasses so that he looks like basically every random 15 year old Japanese kid. What separates light novel guy from Yuji every lead is that light novel guy is how an edgy too cool for school 15 year old Japanese kid sees himself. He stands out from the crowd a little bit and has a dark brooding edge to him that lets you know he's the most important dude around. He's just generic enough to project yourself onto but just stylish enough to look like kind of a cool guy when the chips are down and there's an ass to be kicked. Light novel girl meanwhile is a more specific package but with a few more variables. She's just a bit shorter than light novel guy and she has very large breasts but not like crazy large. If she had really huge boobs then she'd be the girl with the big boobs which is one of the side characters so it's important that her boobs be about as large as could be considered reasonably proportioned for her height. She's got a slender body but just enough leg that she looks like she can muster up a reasonably strong punt to the groin and her candy colored hair falls anywhere from her upper back to just beyond her butt. This is what I call the main girl look. So if their overall designs weren't generic enough, we can also figure out their equally generic personalities by looking at their weapons. Light novel guy's got this big dumb sword with way too much shit going on, which I guess is meant to look like it's got a status buff or something, or like it's poisoned. Whatever, it looks like a plastic toy that's been possessed by a ghost. Meanwhile, light novel girl has a shiny pink rapier and is standing in a comparatively defensive position. Obviously, light novel guy is the type of fighter who's brash, passionate, and maybe a bit out of control from time to time. He jumps headlong into the action, yells about friendship, and does a lot of damage in contrast to his typically lackadaisical and confused nature. Meanwhile, light novel girl is more poised and reserved. She takes herself very seriously and is easily embarrassed because she tries to be guarded with her emotions, but since she's on a crash course with the main character's crotch just by being in the same show as him, then this is going to manifest itself in what many would describe as the tsundere archetype. Light novel guy is going to see light novel girl in various stages of undress more than once and she is not going to be happy about it. The background is littered with garish effects that I'm not even sure what they're meant to represent. The fiery orange shit behind Light Novel Girl kind of looks like it's meant to be in the shape of wings on her back, but then there's also an errant pool of orange crap behind Light Novel Guy, so it's hard to say for sure. It doesn't quite look like an explosion or a fire so much as just like someone going apeshit with a Photoshop tool that makes gradient orange splashes. Behind that is like a bunch of stars and vague sci-fi-ish doodles that once again don't seem like much of anything. The bottom part has been swallowed 
followed by this ugly white goo, which in fairness is not the designer's fault. The original image has the Japanese title in one of those snazzy light novel fonts, and I guess someone at Crunchyroll just did a really lazy job of superimposing the English title over top of it. Alright, enough of this shit, let's watch the damn show. Right off the bat, the first episode opens up with one of my most hated anime tropes. The totally pointless, shitty fight with no context. Two characters that I've never seen and know nothing about are fighting for reasons that I don't understand. It seems to be in some kind of underground arena with a rabidly interested crowd, but it's hard to tell if this is like a sporting event or a gladiatorial thing or if the characters are doing this willingly or even whether or not they're even supposed to end up killing one another. I mean, one of them does end up dead, but was that the nature of the competition or just some kind of accident? There's just too little to go on. At the very least, I can tell I'm supposed to be rooting for the girl because she actually has a face and a voice. The girl is like ridiculously cute because she wears glasses, so I know she's an important character on some level, whereas her opponent is a perfectly generic big dude with a mask and no voice whatsoever. Now I've got a theory based on the way that the mask breaks off at the end of the battle that this guy wasn't given a voice because we're not supposed to know who he is, and if we heard that voice coming out of someone else or saw the actor in the cast list later, then we would know who the killer was. In any case, the cute little girl seems like the underdog in comparison to the big scary masked guy, so for now she has our allegiance in spite of knowing nothing about either character whatsoever. Within the first 10 seconds of this battle, as in 2 seconds after seeing the faces for the competitors for the first time, all of the dramatic stakes in this fight go flying out the window, because the characters transform into a pair of colored lights beaming around at random. Already, the rules and limitations of their abilities have been made irreparably unclear. Like, what the fuck kind of combat scenario comes out looking like a choreographed light show? How far beyond human capability do these powers extend if the characters can move at these ridiculous speeds and, for all we know, turn into laser beams. It's going to become apparent in a second that these colored lights represent the colors of their weapons, but the fact that in this shot there aren't even people attached to them makes the entire scene feel like a surreal metaphor for an actual fight. The next shot is a laughably horrific excuse for fight choreography that tries to cover itself up by happening so fast that you'll be impressed just because the characters are indeed moving. The guy comes running through the foreground towards the girl, but the sense of space is conveyed so poorly and his weapon is so awkward looking that it kinda looks like he totally whiffs. We can only really tell that he's aiming for the girl's head because she ducks down to dodge the attack, even though doing so was probably unnecessary. The girl like rocket boosts off to the right and then swings at the dude, but this time he ducks under it, which was probably unnecessary because the colored light representing the sword's arc is actually right where his head would be if not for the fact that it's in front of him and missed entirely. So the guy lunges at her, but wait, wait, what the fuck just happened? Wait, go back, frame by frame. So in one frame, we see the girl's head start to move to the right, and then in the next frame, she's suddenly in a completely different pose and facing the opposite direction. The dude not only laughably misses his attack, but instead of lunging forward, his body apparently moves backwards, and then he jumps over another sword slash that looks like it wasn't even remotely close to hitting him anyways. After that, the camera just starts switching characters from foreground to background a bunch of times because as long as things are moving fast, they must automatically be exciting, and then we get some 
more ineffectual stabbing action before the girl goes in with her big yell. Now this moment where the guy knocks the girl's hand away is kind of alright, cause it creates a tension dispersal and represents the changing tide in the battle to his taking control, but it's just followed by a bunch of other nonsensical disconnected frames. The whole thing finally wraps up in one of those big all or nothing attacks that always makes me wonder why if the characters could bust out these super moves whenever they wanted to, they decided to save them for the end of the match when they're already exhausted. There's a clash of swords, a pan up to the weirdest light fixture ever, a hint at this mystery man's special powers, and then the girl is dead. From her last words, I'm sorry Ayato, you can pretty easily figure out that this girl is probably the main character's older sister, because who else would it be? The name has to be the main character's name, and the only person who would be around this age and give this much of a shit about him this early into the story would have to be his sister. Now, I don't think it's impossible to open up on a big stupid flashy fight scene and have it be an enticing way to start a show. Obviously, any amount of dialogue or setting detail which might clue us into the purpose of this fight would go a long way in making it more interesting. Or even just if the fighting styles of the characters hinted at what kind of people they are, be that idealistically or culturally or just in the way they fight. Both of these characters seem to have the exact same superpower and nearly identical weapons. How boring is that? Lowering my standards about as far as I possibly can with regards to scenes like this, let's take a look at the nearly identical opening minute and a half of the Blackrock Shooter OVA. Once again, we've got a fight between two characters I've never seen and who have no dialogue, and the scene ends with one of them being killed. Their powers are so over the top that there's no sense of stakes or limitations, and a lot of it is just aimless sword swinging. But even this scene manages to intrigue me in a couple of ways. The location of the battle is like nothing I've ever seen before, and is gorgeously rendered with excellent cinematography. The characters are both pretty goddamn cool looking, and some of the animation cuts and fight choreography is downright stellar. Even the way that Blackrock Shooter's death is represented is a lot more artful and interesting than the spot coloring pool of blood. And let's address that too. When I watched this opening scene from the Asterisk War, I wasn't sure at first if it was supposed to take place in the past, or if it was colored this way just because the location was supposed to be a dark and dreary place. Black and white is like a universal film shorthand for flashbacks, but the scene isn't actually in black and white, it's just really heavily desaturated, but not so much that you can't tell that the girl's hair is supposed to be purple. The laser beams are still bright and colorful, which makes it seem like the location is just a really dark place and the swords are really bright, but then the blood is also really bright, which gives the impression that it was meant to look artsy and cool. It's like they couldn't decide whether they wanted to do like an artsy black and white spot coloring flashback scene, or like a more normal looking fight scene where you can still tell what the characters are supposed to look like and which still has the same general feel as the rest of the show. So they went halfway in both directions and made something that looks like shit. Now that I'm finally done talking about this stupid fight scene, we can let the camera pan up through all these weirdly esoteric shapes which don't seem like they're meant to be literal layers of the building where this fight took place, and then abruptly cut to this screenshot of the Sword Art Online opening theme. This has got to be the laziest possible visual shorthand for vague futurism. It seems at some point that the anime industry collectively decided that the inside of the internet is a stylish color gradient with a bunch of random particle effects and image tabs opened up across an ethereal plane of nothingness. Years 
years of Hollywood films have conditioned us to associate random pictures of vaguely industrial buildings with exposition about the current state of humanity, and through a handful of helpful photographic screenshots, we learn that something called inversia drastically changed the world as we know it, apparently by way of a bunch of meteors falling on Tokyo. Continuing the theme of vague futurism, a CG globe with a bunch of random names on it and some weird hexagon with meaningless symbols attached to it apparently are meant to represent the shift in world powers. It looks more like an RPG stat graph. We are told that the inversia caused a shift in the moral principles of society for some reason, which only informs us that the people of this world should be completely unrelatable to us. This is a very important and accurate detail. I hope you've also figured out that the word inversia is a not at all clever reference to the idea that this incident inverted the nature of the world as it stood. This will not be relevant later on. Over the course of the following scene, the narrator informs us that the inversia led to a new race of people being born with superpowers called the Genestella, and that those people meet in this city called Asterisk in order to fight one another. But I want to break the rest of this scene down in more depth for what's happening visually, and I'm out of time in this video. Yes, it took me 15 minutes to make it two minutes into the first episode. Yes, this is going to be a long ride. Yes, I am a crazy person. Continued in part two. When I left off in the previous video, a handkerchief was floating through the air over an idyllic cityscape where fancy buildings are interspersed with luscious park reserves and Light Novel Guy makes a nice catch. A quick shot of Light Novel Girl informs us that the handkerchief is hers and she seems to be upset about something. Now if you're a genre-savvy anime watcher viewing this episode for the first time, then you probably already know what's about to happen. All you had to see was that the girl's shirt isn't buttoned up all the way and you can guess that this scene is going to end in light novel guy accidentally seeing her in her underwear as a result of his nice guy attempt to return her handkerchief. If you're like me, then you're probably halfway between rolling your eyes and being quietly impressed at the speed with which this show is rushing headlong into trashiness, but we'll put a pin in that for now. We get our first good look at light novel guy and oh my god, it's Kirito! No wait, it's Inaho? It's hard to tell with these A1 Pictures characters, because they all have the same fucking face. Seriously, there's like maybe 10 or so different face templates which this studio seems to use on every single character in the majority of their shows. It's crazy. Now look, I'm not one of those guys who thinks that anime characters all look the same. I can appreciate the subtle differences between, say, the characters in Kaon versus the characters in Hyoka versus the characters in Hibike Euphonium. And I've seen evidence to the fact that when you switch these characters' faces around, they actually look really weird. But what happens when you put Kirito's face on Ayato? Oh. Or what about Inaho's face? Oh. I guess anime characters do all look the same. And it's funny that I'm even bringing this up right now because it is so much worse with their girl characters. Anyways, I digress. Light Novel Guy, by the way, this guy's name is Ayato, gets all glowy, meaning he's gonna do some superpower stuff, and makes this really awful looking leap up to Light Novel Girl's window. He lands all dainty and smooth, but then is struck with embarrassment as he realizes what he's just accidentally done. Pat yourself on the back, everyone, because you saw this coming. Funnily enough, our first panty shot is is decidedly not tantalizing on account of Light Novel Girl apparently has no ass whatsoever, but the camera pans up quickly to hide it and to get into some bra territory. We will come back to this in a second, after the camera's done panning out across the entire world of the story, in a way that actually kind of reminds me of the opening panning shot from Kill La Kill, besides being several fathoms less interesting because it's just a normal city and not the creatively constructed world of Hinoji Academy. This comparison may end up being more relevant than you first expect, but we'll save that for later. 
here. After the title card, we fade in on this shot of a huge building complex, which at this point I'm going to assume is a school campus, in which case it may indeed roughly share the populace of a small city. The main building is 28 stories high, I counted. So of course it wasn't enough that we caught a glimpse of this girl in her underwear before, now we get the full on slow camera pan treatment with all of the details in the garments. May I remind you that this is our first exposure to this character, forgive the double entendre. Before we've been treated to any piece of information about her whatsoever, our first impression is that her underwear matches her hair. Now look, I'm not someone who dislikes fan service in general. In fact, I actually enjoy shows like Kanokon and Seikon no Quasar, wherein the fan service is pretty much the entire point of the show, because at that point it's basically just softcore porn with actual characters. Even in shows that aren't about fan service, I tend to be okay with it as long as the fan service is what I call diegetic. What I mean by this is that the characters are scantily clad for reasons that actually seem normal and make sense narratively. Like it's not unusual to think that if you say went to the beach with a bunch of girls then you're going to see them in sexy bathing suits. That kind of thing is a part of life. It can even add to characterization or to our perspective on a character to see how they may act in situations that lead them to be naked or sexualized and that is totally normal and makes sense. What bothers me is when you take like a plot driven show that doesn't really have much to do with sex or sexuality and then you cram in a bunch of random totally unrealistic scenes wherein characters accidentally see one another naked just for the sake of itself. I mean it's not like I don't understand the appeal of having like a real normal plot based show that happens to be full of cute girls and maybe sometimes you get to see them naked. But it's not even slightly difficult to accomplish this just by having the girls like converse in a locker room or make a pool episode, or at the very least, just admit that the guy is deliberately checking the girl out. A moment like this doesn't even feel like it's happening in the context of the story. It feels like it's happening directly to the viewer. Like the universe of the story has conspired around finding a situation in which the audience can be treated to a titillating camera pan of a half-naked girl, which isn't really in character from the main guy's perspective, nor a logical result of the narrative at all. And what's more, in this particular case, I'm not even really sure how this is meant to attract me to the show. Light Novel Girl certainly isn't my type, which is more a matter of personal taste, but why do I even care that I caught a two second glimpse of some girl I've never even seen before in her underwear? If I wanted to, I could minimize this window right now, open up a new tab, and type pink hair anime boob into Google and immediately have hundreds of pictures of girls identical to this one in whatever state of undress most interests me for as long as I want. What is so enticing about random disjointed fan service moments that it could possibly compete with the infinite resource of carnal pleasures known as the internet. But for the sake of argument, let's say that I live in a universe where the only source of entertainment in existence is anime, and my browser has been set to automatically load up Crunchyroll at all times and no other websites whatsoever. I'm still only a few clicks away from Kanokon, Recently My Sister is Unusual, Demon King Daimao, and So I Can't Play H, which all have a lot more fan service with actual nudity and better animation. If I'm specifically only into girls with long pink hair, I've got Shin Koihime Muso, R15, and Familiar of Zero right there. If I'm specifically interested in seeing fan service of a character voiced by Ai Kakuma, then I can watch Amagi Brilliant Park and Kanojoga Flag Oraretara on the same site. The only thing that this scene provides me, which I can't get a better version of elsewhere, is fan service of a pink haired girl voiced by Ai Kakuma. And if you're watching this show for such a specific reason, then you probably don't 
don't really give a shit about whether it's good or not. By the way, if you want to watch all of those shows, why not use my Crunchyroll link to sign up and make me some money? So Light Novel Girl reacts about how you'd expect, and we watch her change into her weird illogical school uniform as Kirito explains his reason for being there. As soon as Light Novel Girl hears this, she makes the fastest transition from Tsun to Dere that I think I've ever seen, lowering Inaho's guard and making her look like kind of a reasonable person. On a side note, it sure was considerate of the school to provide their students with uniforms that conform perfectly to the contours of their ass. I bet that's real comfortable. Of course, the idea that Light Novel Girl is actually a reasonable character is nothing but a false promise, and as soon as she remembers her purpose in the story, she immediately flips into attack mode and destroys her own living quarters. Like, what else is this shot meant to communicate if not that she has literally blown up her entire apartment because some guy to whom apparently she is incredibly grateful happened to see her in her underwear for a second. It's a good thing this show takes place in a world where everyone's moral principles are different from ours or else this behavior would seem completely irrational. Now, you've probably figured out at this point that I'm not going to offer this show a whole lot of compliments. That's not what any of us are here for anyways. But while we're on this shot of Light Novel Girl's cocky smile, I'd like to give it credit for the one thing that I do think was handled alright by this show. The color design. I realize that some of my critics, who literally refer to me as Pretty Colors Digibro, are laughing their asses off right now, but seriously, the colors are pretty. As silly as the uniforms are, they kind of remind me of Fantasy Star Online, and as much as I don't like Light Novel Girl's hairstyle, I like that shade of pink and how it contrasts with her eyes. The use of gradients in her hair is nice and subtle, which isn't going to be the case for every character, but we can talk about that later. I just wanted to pause on this shot because it's actually got some character to it, even if that character has been such a jumbled mess over the past 30 seconds that it's impossible to have any idea what this girl is actually like. The next shot immediately caused me to burst out laughing. At first I thought, Jesus Christ, that is some awful framing. Who would ever position the camera like that? The characters look like they're just superimposed onto the background. And then I saw the CG classmates. Nothing quite takes me out of a scene the way a bunch of random generic CG pedestrians do. It's never enough that they look completely different from everything else in the show's world and stand out like a sore thumb, but they always end up with these janky walk cycles that look fucking hilarious. This shot is especially incredible because the perspective is so fucked up that they look like they're significant shorter than the main characters. After a couple more students filter into the foreground, it becomes apparent why the main characters look so awkwardly superimposed onto the background. The trees in the distance have this awful filter drawn over them to make them look washed out, as do the CG classmates, and the students in the foreground are blurry and out of focus, which is meant to suggest that the focal point of the proverbial camera is fixed on the main characters. However, the entire grassy area that they're standing on is all in focus, especially the foreground closer to where the students are standing. This is yet another case where it seems like they tried to pull off something cool and cinematic, but only went halfway and ended up with something janky and hideous. We're treated to a quick rinse and repeat of the girl being irrational and then standing awkwardly in a shot full of CG dudes, and then we finally learn her name. Yulis. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. She presses this button on her boob and then a super weird laser thing shoots out of it and a duel is begun. I'm not going to comment on the other details here because they'll kind of be more relevant later. Believe me, you're not missing anything. They just kind of stand there and talk about how they're going to fight for like a minute and a half while the camera tries its damnedest to find new angles to shoot them from. After some random weird little sci-fi holograms float around for a while, we finally launch into yet another big, stupid, pointless fight. Only this time it goes on for two whole minutes. I'm 
mean, it's better than last time since we at least know that both of these characters are relevant and we know their names and why they're fighting, but somehow knowing that this entire fight is predicated on a stupid-ass accidental pervert scene and that there is literally NOTHING at stake somehow makes it all the more annoying. The only conceivable narrative purpose for this fight would be to show off the powers of the main characters, but like everything else in this show, the powers are generic and meaningless. Yulis has a bunch of terrible-looking fire spears that she throws at Kirito and he blocks them all easily. Then she uses the same attack at a higher speed and the result is basically the same. The constantly changing camera perspective, ultra brief cuts, and random explosions all create a nauseatingly difficult to comprehend scene that looks like a million things are going on even though barely anything is actually happening. Yulis is impressed with Kirito's speed so she decides to hit him with a stronger attack. All of her attacks have stupidly long and complex names that you will never ever remember if they come up again but that's okay because the attack is just a really big fuck off fireball. Kirito runs straight at the fireball, but it's a trap. Yulis actually makes it explode. Now, in the process of making this video, I have watched this fight scene four times, and it wasn't until the fourth time that I really sat back and thought about what happens next. Every other time, I was so bored and disoriented by all the flashing lights that I just kind of stopped thinking about it until the fight was over. But now that I'm going through this moment by moment, I can really allow myself to drink this in. Inaho jumps directly through the explosion, as if it didn't do anything to him at all, while shouting the name of an attack called, like, the Twin Dragon or whatever, and then cuts the explosion? I think? Is that what's happening here? Like, it's clear that the explosion has already happened. He is inside of the explosion, and it has not done anything to affect him, but then he slashes his sword in the air a couple of times, and there seems to be another explosion behind him as a result or something? What the fuck is going on in this shot? Right from this, we cut to Kirito pushing Yulis to the ground to protect her from a yellow energy bolt thing fired from the sidelines. So whatever the fuck was going on with him inside of that explosion is just kind of written off in the next shot. I'm willing to bet that no one even noticed how utterly and weirdly stupid that fight scene actually was. So many things were moving around so quickly and there was so much visual stimulation that the entire thing just kind of turned into white noise. And it's not until that moment when Ayato pushes Yulis to the ground that you wake up from your trance and realize that the episode is still happening. Considering that all of those enormous explosions didn't even manage to scorch the grass in the place where the characters were just fighting, you could be forgiven for mistaking that entire scene for a fever dream that you had after passing out during the prior two minutes of characters standing around. It was right around this point in my first viewing of this episode back when it came out that I stopped watching the show. After seven minutes of nothing but irritating, generic, and boring scenes, this utterly meaningless action sequence finally lost me to the point that I got out my phone and started tweeting about how shitty and boring the show is, and I think I left it running for like three more minutes before I finally shut it off. At this point, you probably have a pretty solid general sense of what goes through my head when I'm watching a show like this. The kind of relentless scrutiny that builds up and breaks a show for me so quickly that I just can't take it anymore. But, my dear viewers, if you'll have me, then this is not the end. I did not make this video to explain why I dropped the asterisk war. I made it so that I can slowly try to get to the heart of all the things that bother me so much about shows of this nature and about the works of Studio A1 Pictures. In pursuit of this, I have already watched all of the seven episodes of The Asterisk War which have aired at the time of this writing, and believe me, I have a lot more to talk about. So stick around on my channel if you want to see more. Continued in part three. I'd like to invite all of you to imagine yourselves in the following scenario. 
Some guy that you've never met before does something that really pisses you off, so you challenge him to a duel in the name of preserving your honor and punishing him. Nothing is really at stake or anything, and the guy doesn't even seem like a terrible person, but you just gotta fight him for your own reasons. So, the two of you trade blows for a couple of minutes, and then all of a sudden the guy yells, GET DOWN! and pushes you onto the ground, just as an arrow whizzes through the spot where your head was just a second prior. It takes a moment to process, but you realize that an attempt has just been made on your life and that your opponent has just saved you. Now, given the situation, which of the following actions do you take? Number one, immediately jump to your feet and try to uncover the source of the previous attack and, if possible, hunt down and put a stop to your assailant. Number two, call on the huge crowd of people who have gathered around your fight to identify and attempt to grab the attacker before they escape. Number three, immediately try to evacuate the area and to hide somewhere that won't leave you prone to an incredibly likely second attack. Or, number four, realize that your opponent has accidentally groped you and immediately disregard the attack on your life in order to get flustered. If you chose option number four, then it's likely that your moral principles have been inverted. So after Ulyss is targeted by some attacker off to the side, not a single person does a goddamn thing about it or even addresses it over the course of the entire episode. The crowd just stands around dumbfounded, and the student president comes walking out all nonchalant to cool the heads of the fighters instead of trying to pursue the assailant. The show manages to get away with introducing her this way because we don't know who she is or what she can do yet. But if you come back to this scene knowing that she's one of the most powerful fighters in the academy, extremely protective of the academy, Academy students and more than capable of hunting down and capturing this very target in a later episode, then this scenario looks amazingly contrived. It was around this point when the yellow energy arrow thing hit the ground that a lot of questions popped into my head about how these powers work exactly. In the opening fight scene, we saw a lot of dodging and blocking attacks, and we never really saw the attack that ended the battle, but we at least confirmed that these weapons can be used to kill someone. However, when Ulyss blows up her apartment and then creates a huge explosion right in front of Kirito, it doesn't cause any harm to him whatsoever. As a genre-savvy anime watcher, I found myself assuming that this show follows some kind of logic where energy and projectile attacks aren't really all that heavy on damage, whereas close-range bladed attacks are a lot more lethal. Not that there's really any logic behind this, but when you watch enough anime, your brain just kind of accepts it. So this leads me to the question of whether or not the yellow arrow attack was meant to be lethal or merely to do damage. After all, we just watched a bunch of projectiles and explosions be completely useless, and those were coming from the fifth most powerful fighter in the entire school. So unless the assailant is even more powerful than Ulyss, then there's no reason to assume that the attack would have done any damage, unless we're meant to assume that the kind of attacks which Ulyss used were inherently non-lethal, whereas this type of attack is inherently lethal. See, this is why we need to have some sense of rules or limitations when it comes to random fantastical superpowers, so that pedantic assholes like me don't get hung up on trying to understand what those powers are capable of. Considering that Ulyss becomes more concerned about her accidental groping than she does about the attack, I can't help feeling like maybe the attack wasn't actually supposed to be that big of a deal in the first place. So this scene is our first introduction to the girl with the big boobs that I mentioned in part one. Her personality type is Big Boob Girl Personality Type A, the mysterious and polite big sister. This character always talks in a very polite yet somewhat airheaded manner as a blatant way of concealing the fact that they know a lot more than they let on. They always seem to take control of any scene that they're a part of and to feign ignorance over the fact that the other girls are jealous of their huge boobs. These characters usually have either some kind of authoritative position in their school or a lot of money and are able to pull 
pull the strings and to create opportunities for the main character in the background. Sometimes this character is the same age as the others, as is the case with Claudia here, but other times they may be a bit older. Whereas Light Novel Girl's personality is not necessarily beholden to the main girl look, it is extremely rare for the mysterious and polite big sister to not also be a big boob girl. I'm not going to get too in-depth about anything in this scene for now, but I'd like you to pay attention to the school badges and how they appear to be holograms which Claudia is able to restore using her own badge. At this point, all of this hologram technology is a bit outside our comprehension, but later into the show we'll be looking back on this when things get confusing. We finally have made it to the second half of the first episode as Claudia takes Ayato on a trip through the school to dump some much-needed exposition on him. In the course of voraciously flirting with him right from the get-go, Claudia literally explains to him all of the stuff that I just said about the mysterious and polite big sister. She explains that she puts on an affable outward persona, in spite of the fact that her inner thoughts are dark and conniving, right after stating that she's been the student council president for three years and displaying that she has all the power in this school. It's like she's reading her own TV tropes entry, in a way that's so spot on that I'm left to wonder if this is meant to be self-aware and tongue-in-cheek, or if they really thought that the best way to show us a character's personality is to have them explain. It. Once the pair makes it into Claudia's office, she activates what I like to call the exposition machine, a holographic projector that allows the characters to stand in one place and dump exposition without constraining them to their current location, and allows for relevant on-screen footage without taking the viewer out of the scene. I can't help but wonder if the sequence of displays presented by this exposition machine are pre-scripted and used more than once, or if Claudia programmed all of this just to teach Ayato about the city, or if it has some kind of AI that reacts to her speech, or if she's controlling it with a computer chip in her brain, or if it just doesn't make any logical sense. Claudia names off each of the six schools of Asterisk City, but a few of the images have been deliberately censored to hide the identities of their schoolmasters for dramatic effect. Now, if they had done this exact same scene without using an exposition machine, and were just showing these images to the audience, then this would be understandable. But thanks to the conceit that these images are being projected by a hologram machine, we have to assume that the images contained within that machine have themselves been deliberately censored in-universe. This could conceivably be the case, but it seems both silly and unlikely. As Claudia explains the concept of festas, a huge hexagon behind her shatters into a bunch of little hexagon displays, which all just have random pictures of swords clashing and other generic depictions of battle going on. Just as these things are meaningless to the viewer and moving around too much to really be taken in, they would probably be just as effective to Ayato. So once again, if the impetus here is to keep the audience engaged by having stuff move around the screen, then I have to wonder if the purpose is the same in the context of the narrative. The next couple of sentences finally introduce us to the closest thing to what might be considered the point of this show. Claudia explains that Asterisk City is basically all about these giant inter-high battles called festas, which are internationally viewed events, and she hopes that Ayato will compete in them because their school's track record has gone downhill. Ayato, meanwhile, is not particularly interested in that, and asks about whether or not his sister has attended this school in the past. It's actually unclear at this point whether Ayato is looking for her, or if he's looking for information about her, or if he's aware of the fact that she's dead. Since we already know that she's dead, we're tempted to assume that he knows as well, though it later seems like this isn't the case. And at the end of the conversation, he claims that he's not even here to look for her, but just came to this school to search for a purpose. He doesn't say anything about why he thought that coming here would lead to that purpose, so I guess he's just following his sister's footsteps? This also brings up the question of whether anyone else 
else knows that she's dead, and whether or not they're hiding this information from him, but for now, all of it is pretty unclear. Processing all of that can wait for now, because shit is about to get stupid. After Ayato asks about his sister, Claudia gets him to look at this weird, glitchy image of what seems to be his sister's student file. She says that this student entered into the school five years ago, but then she also says that all of the data about her was deleted, and that it's questionable whether she even did attend the school. Except, all of the data wasn't deleted, because that right there is in fact data, which suggests that she did in fact attend this school, because why the fuck else would this file exist, and why would it say that she was a student? Moreover, what in the name of God is up with the file itself? Like, if all of the other data about her was deleted, then how come this one is just fucked up looking? Why does it seem like this image has some kind of glitch or virus when the rest was totally deleted? Was this image left on purpose, in order to create a trail or a clue for something? Someone, or are we meant to assume that this was some kind of botched attempt at file deletion? If it's the latter, then how in the world did the perpetrator fuck up so badly that they deleted all of the other files, but left the one with her face and name with just a glitchy fucked up look to it? Also, am I to believe that in this world where they can turn an entire room into a hologram projector, they don't have the technology to try to reconstruct this file to look right? This just seems like such a poorly thought out visual representation of his sister's lost data that it raises way more questions than it seems like it was intended to. Claudia goes on to explain that there's an incredibly powerful sword at this school, which, in spite of never having been officially checked out, has a bunch of recorded combat data from around the same time that his sister attended this school, meaning that there's a possible connection between them. If you're thinking right now that you didn't actually realize that this is what Claudia was trying to say here, then don't worry, because you're not alone. The first couple of times I watched this scene, I got so lost amid all the made-up technical jargon that I just kinda zoned out until the conversation was over. It was only after realizing that I I had no idea why the conversation went from the sister to the sword that I watched it again and fully processed the information. I mean, I got that she was basically saying that they have the sister's sword and therefore Ayato was probably going to end up using it, but I sort of lost the logical thread of the conversation. Now, once again, it's probably apparent that I'm not going to say a lot of good things about this show, and why would you want me to anyways, but I will say that I think that the music is actually pretty good. It's not enough to salvage the mind-numbing script, and I don't know if I listen to it independently, but it would have been a fitting backdrop to a much better show. Weirdly enough, the soundtrack was composed by a Swedish electronic and jazz musician named Rasmus Faber, who leads a band called Platina Jazz that's done five albums worth of anime theme song covers, and has a channel on YouTube with them playing a lot of them live. This guy's entire career is more interesting than anything that actually happens in this show, and he seems to have some pretty excellent taste in anime theme songs, so maybe go check out his channel. Getting back to the show, Claudia hands Ayato a weapon that looks and sounds like a plastic toy. Seriously, I can't be the only one who giggles a little every time someone grabs a weapon in this show and the sound effects are totally plasticky. I just can't shake the impression that all the characters are swinging around Power Rangers toys. Claudia wraps up the conversation by flirting some more and saying some mysterious stuff about how she's glad they finally met. Using my magical future sight, which has already watched seven episodes of this nonsense and still has no idea what the connection between these two actually is, I think it's pretty safe to say that their history mostly exists as an excuse for this girl to come with a 
prepackaged interest in the main character and to be on his side from the very beginning for the sake of narrative convenience. Alright, it's time for Inaho's requisite classroom introduction. Those of you who don't know a lot about anime or Japanese culture may be wondering why his teacher is carrying a baseball bat full of nails. This weapon is an old school staple of the high school delinquent punk, and anyone who carries one most likely has a bad attitude. It's not uncommon in shows like this for the main character's teacher to have some kind of quirky personality and to show up at random times in the story as a minor support character, but in the seven episodes of this show that are out so far, I don't remember this teacher having more than four lines of dialogue in total. I have to imagine that they gave her the baseball bat in her first appearance so that the viewer would know off the bat <clears throat> that she's supposed to be a Yankee type character, but considering how totally irrelevant that is to the rest of the story, I'm not even sure why they bothered giving her any gimmick at all. Gee, I wonder how many of these classmates are going to be relevant to the story. Could it be the only two people in the room with brightly colored hair? Naturally, the only open seat just happens to be next to the girl that Ayato was fighting with this morning, so now their mutually flustered encounters may continue. You might be thinking, but wait, the window seat is open too, and isn't that usually where the main character sits? But we'll get back to that in episode two. After class is over, Yulis determines that she is currently in Kirito's debt and offers to do him one favor in exchange for him saving her life. I'm tempted to say that this is important since the entire next couple of episodes are going to revolve around that favor, but I honestly can't bring myself to say that any of this shit is important when nothing in this show fucking matters at all. Eulis exiting the scene activates Classmate Guy to make first contact with the main character. If you know anything about high school anime, then you're probably familiar with Classmate Guy. Every high school anime protagonist has at least one or two of them around. They usually exist for the sole purpose of providing exposition about the popular female characters, being the butt of comic relief, and or declaring their jealousy over how much female attention the main character gets. They've usually got brown hair and barely stand out from the rest of their classmates, and are given some kind of dumb, unmemorable name that will never ever stick with you. And you'll probably forget that they exist most of the time until they randomly show up. This particular classmate guy falls under the newspaper club archetype, a person who is obsessed with everything going on in the school and is therefore more informed than anyone else about what's going on behind the scenes, and therefore can dump a lot of exposition. This is one of the more powerful forms of classmate guy, and this one in particular has some tricks up his sleeves, but we'll get back to that when it's more relevant in a later episode. Classmate Guy basically explains all of the shit that we already figured out about Light Novel Girl just from looking at the promo art. She's very proud, very guarded with her emotions, beats a lot of people up, yeah we got it. This is also where we learn one of Ayato's stupid personality quirks, which is that because he's had it so drilled into his head that he needs to return anything which he borrows, he memorized the voice of the person who threw him a sword to battle Eulis with and is therefore able to return the weapon to Classmate Guy. Every Light Novel Guy has at least one trait of this nature, a predisposition to being a nice guy which reaches the level of superhuman capability, which is part of what makes them come off as such caring and kind-hearted people to all of the girls in the story, cause, you know, the nice guys get all the action in these shows. The conversation is interrupted by the shouts of big dumb-looking guy, who's pissed off at Eulis and demanding a rematch. You can tell that this guy isn't someone you want to root for, because he's got a couple of ugly lackeys following him around and he looks like a muscle-headed brute, but you can also tell that he's probably going to come back in future episodes and possibly end up joining the main character's team, because his character design is a little too unique to be just a one-off villain. Believe me, if the fact that only the important characters have any effort put into their designs has not been made apparent already, it will
will become so later on. Classmate Guy excitedly describes this situation as a big scoop and then materializes a holographic lens in front of his eyeball. Previously, during the build-up to the fight between Eulis and Ayato, there was also a guy recording that fight on a holographic window, but in that case we could see the image on the display, whereas this time it seems to be a lens through which Classmate Guy is recording this. What I'm trying to wrap my head around is the logic by which a hologram is needed for use as a lens. Again, the hologram technology in this show is never really explained, and it seems as though it mostly manifests itself by way of characters generating browser windows with their minds. Specific images can be conjured up instantly without any verbal or physical input, meaning that the student's control over their holograms is purely psychic. It still isn't really clear if these holograms are controlled by the student's Genestella powers, or if they've all got microchips in their brains and the entire world is full of projection materials or something, but the point is that whatever they're using to manipulate these holograms is controlled by their brains. If that's the case, then the students should be able to record information just by using their eyeballs. I mean, not only would a hologram not be able to contain any technology, as the technology would be the thing projecting the hologram, nor would it be able to store any data, as the data would also be stored within the actual technology, but it doesn't even make sense for the hologram to provide any augmentation. If the hologram is supposed to allow him to zoom in or something, and that technology comes from within his brain, then he should be just able to zoom in using his eyeballs. At least with the little hollow screen thing, I could understand it maybe being like a viewfinder or something for the student to confirm what their eyeball recording looks like, but this whole hollow lens thing comes off as totally pointless and ill-considered. Classmate Guy sheds some light on the school's battle ranking system and how the strongest fighters are known as Page Ones, but we'll talk about that in a later episode. After some back and forth with Big Dumb Looking Guy, Eulis makes her bold proclamation that she has a goal which she is dedicated to pursuing and which she is going to win the festa in order to accomplish, which seems to spark some interest in our protagonist. Well, at least we know that one of these characters has an actual motivation and some stake in the narrative, we just don't know what it is yet or any of the consequences for failure. Well, we did it everyone, we finished watching the first episode of the Asterisk War, and it only took nearly three times the actual length of the episode to do so. I mean, technically I haven't even talked about the opening video which played at the end of the episode, or the song that goes along with it, or the next episode previews, so I guess our work is cut out for us. Continued in part four. Over the course of the last three videos, I've complained a lot about how the characters in the Asterisk War seem like nothing more than walking cliches. Now I'd like to take this video to explain exactly what it means for a character to be a cliché, and why it bothers me so much to watch a show that's full of them. Almost every character in every story in existence can be slotted into some kind of archetype, which comes as a result of the limited number of thoughts and ideas which humanity is capable of experiencing. We write characters that make sense to us and who reflect our perception of reality, and as such there tends to be a lot of commonalities among our expressions, because as human beings there are only so many things that set us apart from one another. Moreover, it's almost impossible to be a creative person without being influenced by other creative people. Almost everyone who makes art is a big fan of art, whether their scope of influence is very broad or very narrow. As such, any writer's sense of characterization is most likely informed by the work of other writers, be that in the way of direct inspiration or in the way of giving them ideas about what to avoid and subvert in their own writing. When you look at the landscape of storytelling from a bird's eye perspective by consuming as many works as you can and relating them to one another in a complex way, 
web of influences, then the trends among those works become increasingly apparent. Once you understand that Hideki Anno is a huge fan of Mobile Suit Gundam and Space Runaway Ideon, then you understand why he might construct a story about a young man being thrust against his will into piloting a giant robot for the sake of a cause that he doesn't necessarily believe in, and why the film conclusion basically involves everyone dying and the nature of the universe being rewritten. Once you know that Attack on Titan author Hajime Isayama is a big fan of Muv Love Alternative, then you understand why he'd construct a story about humanity making a desperate stand against an overwhelmingly monstrous force in which major characters are regularly eaten by giants. It's a chain of causality and influence that allows you to view culture as one big grand meta-narrative. A cliché is what happens when a scenario is written not as an emergent result of being influenced by other work or of the author translating their understanding of the world around them, but instead as a result of making an observation about the types of scenarios which can be found in the greater cultural consciousness and then creating a scenario based around that idea. Take, for example, the Sundere. The term Sundere began as an observation. People noticed that there was a tendency in visual novels for one of the main female characters to start off acting abrasive towards the male character and then to eventually develop feelings for them and end up acting lovingly towards them. The moment when Sundere became a cliché is when authors started going out of their way to create characters which would fit into the Sundere archetype. Now, I don't think it's impossible to write a good Sundere character while being aware that you are in fact writing one. It's more a matter of your approach. To me, the easiest way to tell a good character from a cliché one is to ask yourself the simple question, why does this character act the way that they do? For example, Louise from Zero no Tsukaima starts off acting abrasive towards the main character because she's generally a prideful, insolent, angry, and sensitive rich girl who spends most of her time pissed off at everyone. Her personality gradually changes as a result of the main character's influence and she finds herself falling in love with him, but let's take a step back and ask ourselves why she acted that way in the first place. We understand from the beginning that even though she comes from a noble and important background, Louise is possibly the weakest magician at her school. And this disconnect between her prideful upbringing and the constant source of ridicule that is her powers causes her to understandably develop a complex about it. As the series continues, the more that we learn about her family and her past, the more her attitude just kind of makes sense as the result of her surroundings. Whether you find her personality to be tolerable or not, I think that Louise is a pretty well-done Sundere character for this reason. Now, let's take a look at Ulyss from the Asterisk War. Like Louise, she's known for acting abrasive and insolent towards her classmates and getting into fights, and we see in the first episode that she's very sensitive and prideful. Likewise, her personality is changed by the main character, and she very quickly begins to develop feelings for him. So let's ask the big question again. Why did Eulis act the way that she did in the first place? In episode 3, we learn that when Eulis was a kid living as a princess in another country, her life was saved by a bunch of kids from a local orphanage, and she spent a lot of her time hanging out with them afterwards. She decided to come to Asterisk City so that she could win money and put it back into the orphanage, and she seems to harbor a deep grudge against the world, and against this city in particular, for its callousness and its reliance on money. However, while this explains her motivations, it doesn't 
really tell us anything about how she became the kind of person that she is today. We don't really get a sense of what she was like before or after meeting these orphaned kids, or if she might have changed after coming to the city. We really don't know much of anything about her besides the surface level details of her personality and the broad strokes of her endgame motive. Now, I don't think that every character needs to be given an extensive backstory in order to sell us on the idea that they are who they are for a reason. Another method is simply to reinforce the character's personality throughout the narrative. It's not until episode 9 of Toradora that we learn some of the reasons for Taiga's bad attitude and solitary, clumsy living experience, but we get a pretty firm grasp of her character by the end of episode 2. We more or less understand who she is and what she's going through and the difficulties created by her situation, so that even even if we don't know exactly how she became this way yet, we can appreciate how much she changes when she starts being influenced by her friends. Meanwhile, our entire understanding of what kind of person Eulis had been before the intervention of the main character comes from a couple of accidental pervert scenes and one little explanation from Classmate Guy. In fact, we're only informed of the idea that she's known for being hard-nosed towards her classmates after we've already seen her softening up towards the main character as early as their introduction. Her dere is built directly into her soon. We never once get to see what Eulis was like before the beginning of her transition into the person that she is by the end of episode 4. Oh, and yeah, the transformation only takes like 4 episodes, but we'll talk more about that later. All of this gives me the impression that Eulis was written as a Sundere first and as a character second. She was built from the ground up to be a girl who would start off with an antagonistic demeanor towards the main guy and then to eventually soften up and fall in love with him. Any other aspects of her personality feel like window dressing to the core idea of her being a Sundere, and as a result, nothing about her character resonates with the audience. The only appreciation that you can have for her is on the database level, by recognizing her place within the tradition of the Sundere archetype and possibly having a categorical attraction to that archetype as a whole. This problem of recognizing the characters as cliches first and as characters second is pervasive throughout the entirety of the series, and is why it's so baffling and hilarious that Claudia reads off her own TV tropes entry during her first on-screen minute in episode 1. At the start of episode 2, we finally get our proper introduction to Ayato's older sister, Haruka, in the form of a flashback to his childhood. This scene only manages to establish Haruka as yet another walking cliché, dead family member type A, the maternal guardian. This is a character whose only apparent trait is their nobility in protecting and educating the protagonist to become the kind of person that they are today. The best way to handle this kind of character is to show them as little as possible, to have them mostly exist in the form of the protagonist talking about how influential they were from time to time, so that we know what they meant to said protagonist. As soon as you start actually showing this character dispensing lessons and declaring their desire to protect the protagonist, the character becomes too good to be true. It's understandable for Ayato's memories of his older sister to pertain mostly to her influence over him and to her desire to protect him, but the presentation of this scene does not suggest that this is from Ayato's perspective. If it were, then lingering on the face that Haruka makes after Ayato says that he's going to protect her would seem out of place, since he obviously doesn't interpret any meaning out of her making this face. The delivery of this scene really makes it out like Haruka's entire life was all about protecting and guiding her little brother, which, if true, makes her an incredibly boring character. 
In Full Metal Alchemist, the mother of the main characters was dead from the beginning, and the brothers often remembered her as a caring and kind mother whose death and their attempt at resurrecting her were the inciting incidents of the story. However, what eventually made Trisha Elric interesting was that she never quite got over the departure of her husband or was able to be completely happy with her life as a solo parent. It was in recognizing how hard her life had become and trying to make her happy again that the brothers began developing their alchemy powers and learning to become stronger as individuals. Even though we barely knew anything about Trisha, we had some idea of the fact that she had a life and feelings outside of taking care of her children, and that realizing this was a huge part of those children coming into their own as responsible people. In contrast, what Ayato remembers about his sister is that she was always trying to protect him, and what he takes away from that is that it's his job to try to protect someone he cares about as well. Like the Elric brothers, Ayato wanted to protect his maternal figure, but unlike them, he doesn't even know yet that he failed to do so. Whereas the Elric brothers had to confront the real meaning of being a protector and the sacrifices that come with caring for someone before the death of their parent in the beginning of their journey, Ayato only learns the basics, that protecting someone is the way to go, and he doesn't even know what his sister eventually sacrificed in order to protect him. He will never have the opportunity to see his sister in another light, and neither will we. Moreover, the narrative has no intent of punishing him for the shallowness of his ideals. Ayato is so fucking overpowered that protecting the people he cares about is the easiest thing in the world. Like everyone else in the Asterisk War, Haruka's existence seems like it was intended to fulfill a narrative purpose more so than anything else. She exists so that Ayato can have a guardian figure who is responsible for his sense of morality and even possibly for his combat abilities, as well as to facilitate a mysterious connection between Ayato and the school. Her personality is only revealed in as much as what is necessary in order to fulfill these narrative goals. It's entirely possible that we may one day learn about Haruka's personality and motivations in more depth, but given the overall dearth of creative ideas in this series so far, I would be absolutely fucking shocked if such a thing were to happen. Episode 2 is also our introduction to Saya, and I don't think it's even remotely exaggerating to describe her entirely in TV Tropes terms. Deadpan Lolly, Childhood Friend, Hammerspace, Done. Why is Saya in love with Ayato? Because she's his childhood friend. We are literally given no other explanation. In fact, after it's revealed that they were childhood friends, it seems like the show just figures that we assumed she was in love with him and doesn't even bother building up to it or stating it outright. She just immediately starts fighting over him. Why does Saya attend this school? Because her father is apparently a sort of mad scientist who constantly comes up with new and crazy weapons, and she wants to help promote those weapons by using them in combat. Why is this relevant to the show? Because it would be really adorable and funny if there's this little girl who's always pulling out gigantic guns. Why does Saya have this personality? I'm not sure. In fact, her personality confuses me a little because it kind of fails at being the cliche that it sets out to be. I know that's a strange and pretentious sounding statement, but hear me out. The deadpan lolly is usually a very strict and specific character archetype. These characters very rarely speak or react to things going on around them, and when they do, their reaction is always deadpan. They may have moments of determination and jump in to protect their friends, but it feels like they have to muster up all of their energy just to do so, or otherwise their priorities and abilities are so alien that we can barely comprehend them. They're usually tired and non-committal, and if they're a part of the main character's harem, then they act like the guy belongs to them just because he does. Saya has most of these elements, but her deadpan act isn't very convincing. In spite of her having missed a day of class due to oversleeping and then regularly passing out, she ends up being a lot more talkative and proactive in the following episodes, and is 
is a lot more clearly motivated than a typical character of her archetype. Now, if you wanted to, you could view this as breaking convention. Maybe this is the type of character that they wanted to make. But I can't shake the feeling like this was just a really awkwardly failed attempt at making a deadpan lolly character. The proactive and fiery attitude that she takes towards her competitiveness with the other girls just kind of seems at odds with the sleepy and non-committal nature that she's presented with at the start. Maybe I'm reading too deep into all this, particularly as someone who is a fan of the deadpan lolly archetype, but that's just how it comes across to me. Not that it matters because Saya is completely completely fucking extraneous and you could cut her from the show entirely and it would change absolutely nothing because she exists exclusively for the sake of being able to shoehorn a deadpan lolly childhood friend hammerspace character into the story. Here's a list of other better deadpan lollies just in the name of providing examples. Now, I don't necessarily think that a viewer needs to be able to recognize these cliches or to be able to provide examples of other characters who follow the same archetypes in order to recognize that these are cliched characters. Even if you've only seen a handful of different anime series, you will probably suspect that these are not the most interesting or unique characters in the medium, because all of them have so little in the way of personality or motivations. They aren't the kind of characters that you easily connect with or understand, and if you've even heard the word Sundere before, then you could probably figure out that you Eulis is one of them. However, I do think that the more familiar a viewer becomes with these cliches, the more annoying they become. I think if you challenged me to try and name 100 Sundere characters in less than 20 minutes, then I would be able to do so with time to spare. I have seen Sundere who were the main characters of some of my favorite anime, such as Taiga from Toradora. I heard the term for the first time in 2007 when I was being disappointed in characters like Shana and Nagi Sanzanin, and I've seen characters following this archetype from before the term even existed, like Akane from Ranma 1 Half, or even, to an extent, Yukino Miyazawa from Kare Kano, one of my favorite anime characters. I've seen decent Sundere like Asuna and Misaka, and I've seen terrible cliche Sundere from, fuck, nearly everything this season. Every single time I see a new Sundere, that Sundere is going to be compared to every other Sundere that I've seen before. Is she as complex and interesting as Asuka Langley? Is she as cool and likable as Makise Kurisu? Is she as hot as Suzumiya Haruhi? Probably not. This is why it bothers me so much to watch a show full of cliché characters. Not only have I seen it all done elsewhere, but I've seen it all done better. I liked Claudia more when she was Tomoe Mami, I liked Yulis more when she was Kashiwazaki Sena, and I liked Saya more when she was the last remaining original, I mean, when she was Ezumori Nozomu. It's bad enough that the characters in this show are a bunch of one-note, boring pieces of cardboard that I can't relate to, but when you throw in that I've seen a million other characters exactly like them but better, it just becomes insurmountably tiring. And I haven't even really talked about the main character guy yet, but we can dig into him a little more when we get back to following the show in chronological fashion, because apparently I'm still watching this shit. Continued in part 5. Episode 2 is when it really sinks in that the Asterisk War is fucking boring. Sure, the first episode was boring too, but for a lot of more technical reasons that have to do with pacing and craftsmanship, it tried and failed to lure the audience in with a bunch of fan service and flashy action sequences, and then remembered that it had to actually explain the setting and dumped a shit ton of exposition on us all at once. But episode 2 is where it starts to become apparent that even if we did have context into who all of these characters are and what they were trying to do from the beginning, then it wouldn't have mattered 
because they're all fucking boring. I'm not even gonna talk about this scene where Eulis explains that she has no friends and then flirts with the main guy like a fucking idiot. Who cares? This entire three minute scene only serves to clue us in that Eulis and Ayato are going to end up being a pair when they go to the festa. The setup is basically beating us over the head with it, yet somehow doesn't call attention to it, as if anyone is going to wonder, oh, who could Eulis possibly end up having as a partner? This whole show is just like a wink and a nod away from being like a shitty parody of itself. Not long after we see Eulis laughing at Ayato and he says how he's surprised at her for laughing, she then responds to his greeting at school and everyone loses their shit. I explained this in the last video, but it's really difficult to care about the idea that Eulis is changing into a decent person when we didn't really know shit about her in the first place and we never really got to see what she was like in class outside of what we were told during the exposition. Then Saya wakes up. So remember when Ayato didn't sit in the window seat and it was like, whoa, he's not in the window seat? Well, that's because they had a more insidious plan in mind. The whole surrounded on all sides by relevant characters plan. The window seat just happens to be occupied by the other character with candy-colored hair, and she just happens to be Ayato's childhood friend for no adequately explained reason. How long ago was she his friend? What kind of friend? Where? Were either of them broken up about it when Saya moved away? Saya doesn't seem to react all that much when she notices Ayato, but like five minutes later, she's apparently in love with him, to the point that she fights over him. Again, it's hard to believe that this show isn't some kind of shitty meta-commentary like Saya Kano. Saya says that she has her own motivations for coming to the school besides the fact that her father asked her to, but they are a secret, just like every other potentially interesting fact about any of the characters. You know, typically, when you want the audience to get interested in a character, you start by letting us understand their motivations and personality so that we get invested. And then, when you put them into dangerous situations wherein their careers and lives are at stake, then we feel tense and excited, teasing us that there's a possibility that maybe one day the character will reveal themselves to be interesting only means that the show's gonna be fucking boring until then. When asked about her absence the pre previous day, Saya explains that she overslept. I guarantee you that we will never actually see her miss another day of class in the entire series. I say this because I'm less convinced that she missed class because she's the kind of character that would sleep through class regularly, and I'm more convinced that the writers didn't want to introduce her during the first episode when they were busy setting up the other characters, and needed an excuse for why she wasn't there during the previous classroom scene. Yeah, that's right, the writers are using the character's excuse for why they missed school as their own excuse for why the character missed school. If that ain't meta, I don't know what is. You know, I usually love these kinds of deadpan characters, and I appreciate Shiori Izawa's vocal performance, but Saya just is not all that endearing. For a deadpan character, she's not that deadpan, and for a mimetic comedy character, she's not that cute or funny. I can't stand the way the gradients in her hair look, or the random mishmash of colors in her accessories. So, her hairpiece is yellow, but the cuffs and undershirt are pink, and she's also got a tie. I feel like the pink or the yellow would have worked with her blue hair individually, but altogether it's just kind of a clusterfuck, and the pink undershirt just looks terrible in general. Not to mention that all of it clashes with the bright green line in the middle of the uniform. I should have asked this back when Classmate Guy was introduced, but why the hell is the dress code so flexible in this school anyways? What's the point of having uniforms if you can just change the uniform? Ever since Hibike Euphonium, my tolerance for this shit has been rapidly decreasing. 
After class is over, Eulis gets ready to take Ayato on a tour of the school in town that I didn't talk about before because it was boring, and then everyone just stands around in the classroom forever while the girls act like a bunch of catty, flirty bitches. That's not me being misogynistic, it's just how the show treats its female characters. A bunch of catty, flirty bitches who've got nothing better to do in their life than fight over who gets to serve some shitty, boring guy. If this is supposed to be an escapist fantasy or something, then I really want to know what guy's fantasy is to be constantly fought over by by a bunch of annoying, boring dumbasses. So then Eulis gives Ayato and Saya the tour of the school, and all I could think was, why the fuck do I have to see this? None of these locations seem like they're going to be relevant at all in the future, and the way the scene is edited just doesn't give any sense of where they are in relation to one another anyways. I get that this scene is mostly played up as a joke, since Saya ends up being the one who's impressed with all the faculties, and the joke is that she would have made a really shitty tour guide to begin with, but imagine how easy it would have been to make this scene more interesting. This show takes place in a few futuristic sci-fi world and they decided to show us a fucking cafeteria. Why not have her show him the training facility, which we'll be seeing them use in episode 5, or the room with all the scientists and the weapons and shit, which comes up later in this very episode. Anything would have been more interesting than three boring-ass locations as the setup to some dumbass joke that means nothing for the plot of the episode. Ayato just fucks off afterwards to get drinks and none of it mattered at all. While Ayato is away, Eulis and Saya get back to arguing over who his dick belongs to, and Saya drops some hints that Ayato is supposed to be crazy strong, if we hadn't realized already. Then the pair gets attacked by the yellow arrow assailant again, and this time we see that it's... a guy in a fucking hood. You want to know what's the number one fastest way to eliminate all tension during an action scene involving the main characters of a show? Have their opponent look as unthinkably generic as humanly possible to the point that they don't even register as a character. Eulis tosses a couple of fire spears at him and then Saya blows up the entire area with her giant gun and the scene just ends. No seriously, the camera just never cuts back to the opponent. Did he die? Did he run away? It doesn't seem to matter either way because Saya instantly challenges Eulis to continue their spat from before. No one tries to figure out what just happened, or to maybe run away and tell someone about it or something. They just fucking stand there until Ayato gets back and they realize that their clothes are wet. Once again, the show uses fan service as like one of those red lasers from Men in Black and everyone just forgets what just happened. Luckily, the following scene finally decides that they've gone way too long without addressing this whole assassination bullshit, and we learn that the school has indeed begun looking into it. However, Eulis has stubbornly declared that there is no need for an investigation or for bodyguards. At this point, I think it's safe to say that Eulis is completely fucking retarded. When Ayato asks Claudia why Eulis is so fucking retarded, Claudia gives some bullshit esoteric explanation about how she's afraid that what she has might slip through her fingers. Do these people not grasp that in a situation like this, Eulis shouldn't even be allowed to decide whether or not there's an investigation? This is a series of criminal attacks threatening a member of their student body. The campus police force should be massively patrolling the entire campus and opening the biggest fucking investigation possible. Because whether this selfish bitch likes it or not, there's no way of knowing that she's the only person being targeted or that other students won't be caught in the crossfire of the next attack. Even if it was just a matter of Eulis versus the attacker, the fact that their battles result in massive property damage to the school should be grounds for an investigation. And what about Saya? She was right there during the last attack, shouldn't she get a say in whether there's an investigation? Does she get a bodyguard? This show is starting to give me brain cancer. The rest of the episode tells the story 
story of how Kirito finally gets his real sword, by way of some kind of Evangelion meets the sword in the stone situation. Basically, every weapon has a percentage of compatibility with its user, and if that percentage is more than 80, then they get to use the weapon. The muscle-headed guy tries to take the mystery sword that Ayato's sister used, and while it's obvious that he's not going to be compatible with it, the cheese factor is turned up to maximum when his compatibility drops to a negative percentage and the sword tries to attack him. Luckily, our hero is able to effortlessly take hold of the sword and achieve a 97% compatibility with it. May I remind you that this is supposed to be like the strongest weapon that they have. So not only is Ayato supposedly a strong enough fighter that Saya thinks he would have mopped the floor with Eulis no problem, but now he possesses the strongest weapon that we've ever even heard of so far. Because who needs narrative stakes, am I right? I'm half expecting to find out later that his sister's soul is actually inside of the sword somehow, and if that turns out to be the case, then I sincerely hope that this video gets released before then. I promise I wrote this when there were only seven episodes out, you just have to take my word for it. The episode finally ends on some fanservice teasing, where Ayato comes to Claudia's room while she's finishing up a shower, but we'll have more to say about that next time. For now, we finally made it to the end of this boring-ass episode. And what have we learned? That Eulis is changing into a better person and falling for Ayato? Well, we pretty much figured that out from the beginning. That Ayato is going to be using his sister's sword from now on? Well, we knew that would happen as soon as we heard about the sword. That Saya exists? Who cares? She's completely irrelevant to the story and could have been introduced at any time and it wouldn't have made a difference. We didn't learn anything else about Eulis's attackers, and in fact Eulis herself seems to be actively trying to prevent anyone from learning anything new. All that really happened for most of this episode is that characters stood around flirting and bickering. What a great show totally earning that 7.3 mal score. Why did they waste a pretty decent ending theme on a show like this? Written by Rasmus Faber and sung by Maya Sakamoto? These are people that you typically find working with fucking Yoko Kano, generating some of the most legendary singles in anime song history. You really want to slap that kind of thing on a generic shit pile like the Asterisk War? I mean, the opening theme wasn't bad either, but at least it was every bit as generic and interchangeable as everything else in the show. You might as well be consistent with stuff like this. You know, looking back on this episode, it really starts to sink in just how cynical and half-hearted this entire production feels. Like how it really does read like they're just throwing action scenes in for the sake of having them, and then using fan service to sweep under the rug how totally incomprehensible those scenes actually are. Maybe I'm so inclined to believe that Saya's like some kind of weirdly botched attempt at making a deadpan character, because everything else is so weirdly botched in the same kind of way. It's like the show just takes for granted that you get where it's coming from. Eulis and Ayato are given exactly three encounters before the one in which Eulis starts fighting over him. The accidental pervert scene resulting in a duel, the scene where they meet in class, and then the scene where he talks to her after dealing with the muscle guy. In all of these encounters, Eulis is continually abrasive and argumentative with him, but immediately won over by his kind demeanor. Then one scene later, she's doing her makeup in preparation for showing him around the school, and then gets into a territorial argument over him with her classmates, one of whom we learn is in love with him at that exact moment, and the other who started flirting the instant she saw him. Think about that. Eulis is the only character with any kind of explicit moment in which she develops an attraction to the main character, and half of our understanding that she's fallen for him comes from our genre-savvy awareness that she's a tsundere. This show starts having its girls argue over the main guy before even bothering to explain the fact that any of them are in love with him, or why that might be the case. It's just taken as a matter of fact. They're girls, they have speaking lines, and they're in a light novel adaptation. What else could they be there for? 
there for. Every scene feels like it's just taking off a box on a checklist. Introduce concept that Festa has to be done in pairs check. Introduce love triangle check. Action scene check. Actually calling attention to the only apparent overarching plot thread check. Note, that's calling attention to, not actually progressing. Getting the main character's weapon and proving that he's a badass check. Tits, check. Each sequence begins and ends either just by cutting in and out at random or by Claudia telling Ayato where to go. Enemies just disappear when the fighting is over. Claudia walks Ayato to the sword room and then calls him to her room later that night. And the scene at the start of the episode is delivered as a flashback during Ayato's morning jog just so that they'd be able to cut in and out of it without worrying how to organically transition from the end of the last episode. This is why I tend to think of A1 Pictures as the McDonald's of anime studios. Because a lot of their shows feel like they were put together on an assembly line. I don't know how bad the original light novels for this series were, and I don't know how much the staff is to blame for failing to change it. Both of the directors have been involved with shows that I kind of like, such as Saki and A-Channel, but one of them was also the guy who directed Dragonaut the Resonance, which was the seasonal laughingstock of Fall 2007, so make of that what you will. Honestly though, it's hard for me to blame anyone when I look at something like this. It's hard for me to imagine that anyone here didn't know exactly what they were making. They just did it because it's their job. Because for some reason, this kind of shit has a market, and by god, they're going to cater to it. I'm sure that some of the people working on this show are really passionately giving it their all, but I also like to think that for some of them, knowing that this monster they've created is actually pretty successful is as depressing to them as it is to me. Continued in part 6. You know, when I stop to think about it, the Asterisk War is basically just an incredibly shitty cyberpunk story. Aside from the fact that it's missing the film noir aesthetic, it's pretty much got all of the elements. Advanced technology and science, information networks and cybernetics, a breakdown and radical shift in the social order of society, megacorporations, a near-future Earth, and being primarily focused on the marginalized members of its society, in a way. Given that cyberpunk is my favorite genre of fiction in general, it's a little surprising that I didn't realize it sooner, but then cyberpunk is so heavily defined by its aesthetic that even with all of those elements, it's still difficult to consider this show to really be a part of the genre at all. And the funny thing is that I think that's part of its problem. Like every other aspect of its narrative, the setting of the Asterisk War seems like it was cobbled together from the ideas in a bunch of other better stories with no understanding of how or why the settings of those stories worked. To explain what I mean, I'm going to have to start with the broad strokes of the society described in the show's narration and work my way down from there. So from the top, we are told that the major event which put the Earth on course to become what it is at the time of the story was the Inversia, an unspecified catastrophe which apparently caused most of the world's nations to rapidly decline in power, leading to the formation of one global superpower. It's difficult to interpret exactly what kind of situation would lead to this, considering that this trope usually comes from all of the world's nations uniting against a common foe, more so than in the wake of a catastrophe, but whatever, it's not a big deal. This is the kind of stuff I'm willing to suspend my disbelief over. We next learn that the Inversia caused the birth of a new race of humans with superpowered capabilities called the Genestella. Whether this came about as some kind of genetic mutation or evolution is unclear, but that's fine. The nature of these powers and their limitations are also unclear, which is lame, but not a deal breaker. Things start to get weird though once we 
we get to the foundation of Asterisk City. We are told in no uncertain terms that Asterisk City exists for the sole purpose of facilitating a yearly tournament of Genestella Mortal Kombat known as the Festa. So if we're thinking of comparisons, then I guess it's kind of like an Olympic village that doesn't move and has an entire gigantic city built around it. You would kind of think that whatever goes on in all of those massive skyscrapers would have taken precedence by now, unless all of it is corporations tied into running these Festas, which honestly wouldn't surprise me anyways. Here's where things get weird. The combatants in these festas are all students who each attend one of the city's six huge academies. These students consist of powerful Genestella from all over the world who are scouted for competition, or otherwise who arrive in the city with the desire to compete. This is where they lost me. Why students? Do I even need to ask? Is this not the obvious question? Why students? Why? So it's kind of implied that the Genestella might be a sort of put-upon race of people in this world, but at the same time, it totally doesn't seem like it. In fact, as far as I can tell, no one is actually being forced into these competitions. All of the main characters have very specific motivations for competing and seem to have arrived of their own accord. There doesn't seem to be any particular reason for why the Genestella have to fight one another besides that they want to. So, uh, why students. Why? Why? Why students? Why? Whenever Eulis talks about Asterisk City and the Phoenix Festa, she's always sure to make a bunch of snide and disgusted remarks about how the Festas are what the people want and how the city is run on greed and darkness and how the world is a terrible place. So like, I get the sense that the Festa is some kind of hyper-popular blood sport competition that represents the twisted morals of this new society, but uh, why students? Why students? Let's ignore that when it comes to most sports, one of the most exciting aspects is getting to watch a great athlete's entire career. People who don't like sports usually don't like them because they don't know enough of the narrative, whereas people who are into them are usually as interested in them as a storytelling medium as they are in the impressiveness of the sportsman's physical accomplishments. It's not easy to form an interesting sports narrative if everyone's career is over the second they're out of high school. Let's also ignore that even if this is purely a blood sport and people just want to watch Genestella ripping each other to pieces, then surely older competitors would be stronger, more vicious, and more experienced as warriors making for a much better show. At this rate, I can only assume that this society has become so twisted that they can only enjoy a blood sport wherein teenagers specifically are killing one another. Never mind that according to the wiki, the fighters don't even necessarily have to kill one another, but serious injuries can be expected. I mean, I find all this to be kind of a stretch, but I'm pretty sure this was also the plot of those Hunger Game things I never saw, so maybe that's what's in vogue right now or something, but like, here's the rub. In the Hunger Games, the teenagers had to compete. Their society was built around forcing random kids to kill each other for the amusement of the rich, and all of the kids had to fight so that their slum would be able to eat or something like that. My only exposure to these things is through internet analysis videos. I I have a problem. The reality is that the entire story concept is completely implausible. The answer to the question of why students is simply because light novel. Because this author decided to simultaneously write in the genre of a typical high school harem action series while also attempting to write a dystopian sci-fi story, and they fucked it up. 
I wish I could pull back all the layers on this whole system of government and society, but it's difficult to do so because the setting is so poorly defined. We're constantly being told how greedy and twisted this city is, but we barely ever see how or why. Like, I get that all the schools are viciously competing and often using underhanded tactics, but fucking everyone signed up for this! It's not like anyone comes to this island just to go to class. They're here because they're supposed to be exceptionally powerful Genestella handpicked for competition, right? Well, that brings me to another question. Why are the students students? As in, why are they just going to school at these schools? I know there's a bunch of training facilities and shit and that the school provides everyone with weapons, but why even keep up the facade of a school at all? Are these students not here to become career warriors? Aren't the best of them expected to compete with their lives on the line? Maybe they should be spending more time learning how to fight so they can fucking survive. Fat lot of good all that math is gonna do them when their ass is getting killed in the festa. Plus, the winner is supposed to be able to basically ask for whatever they want, so it's not like they're gonna need all that knowledge if they do win. There's this part in episode 3 when Eulis is explaining that the city is full of stages everywhere, both big and small, for people to have random fights, but the animation staff didn't even bother showing any of them. Real fucking nice guys, way to nail those setting details and really make this place come to life with its own personality instead of just looking like any fucking generic city. But therein lies another question, why are people fighting at random. Eulis says that most people don't even bother taking their fights to the stages, but why? The way I understand it, each school has its own ranking system, wherein people challenge one another to duels, and whoever wins a lot of duels gets a higher rank, and then the highest ranked kids get to compete in the festas and potentially fulfill their wishes. So I kind of understand the incentive to fight people from your own school at your own school, but why would you ever challenge anyone from any other school out in the open? What would be the benefit benefit of that. Throughout the first four episodes, Eulis is hunted by one of her classmates who is being paid by a rival school to try and take her out. The fact that this guy comes from her school means that he's probably a much lower rank than her, considering that she's one of the strongest students in attendance, so she's probably just gonna wipe the floor with his Oh. Well, it would have made sense. But here's what also would have made sense. If the other schools just sent their strongest dudes to fucking beat the shit out of her. Sure, the whole inside man thing makes sense on paper, and if Eulis was like barricaded inside the school and the school was under high security, then all of that would be understandable. But Eulis doesn't just make regular trips out of the school, she makes a point of it. She outright states that she doesn't intend to let these attackers alter her daily routine, because I guess she sees them as some sort of terrorists. What everyone fails to appreciate here is that a top-level school could simply tell their best guy to just walk up to her in the middle of the road and slit her fucking throat. To tell you the truth, I could go on like this all day long, but I feel like I've made my point. That the setting details are played so fast and loose in this story that you could easily break every narrative concept in a million different ways with about 10 seconds of thought. The setting is such a load of nonsense that it's difficult to take anything seriously or to care about anything that goes on. And that's just the social structure. I haven't even started on the technology. According to the opening narration, the Asterisk War is set at least 100 years into the future 
future, since the inversia is said to have occurred during the previous century. Setting the story so far into the future and creating a world in which a major cataclysm has occurred that completely upended the fabric of society as we know it gives a lot of leeway for what the author could have come up with in terms of technology, and in terms of the abilities which the new species of humanity are able to tap into with their powers. This opportunistic setting is completely squandered, and we are presented with something that could have just as easily been set like 30 years in the future with no cataclysm at all, or it having occurred yesterday or something. In fact, Asterisk City is virtually indistinguishable from any average, nice-looking modern city. Apparently, whatever technological advancements did happen weren't enough to change the way that people go about their everyday lives. It's good to know that even if the world gets destroyed by meteors, causing all of its nations to weaken and reshape into a mega-nation over the course of more than a hundred years, we'll still have McDonald's serving up their same old combo meals. I guess it's called Wickdonald's now, though, because society has been inverted. What little technological advancements we do get to see are also vague and ill-conceived that I'm still not entirely sure what is tech and what is magic, and I don't mean that in the advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic sense, or maybe I do. I'd be able to tell you if I knew which shit was tech and which shit was magic. It seems like holograms are able to be manifested at all times in all places by all people, and that these holograms are controlled through mind powers. As difficult as it is for me to conceive of a computer so advanced that it can be controlled via telepathy to do anything as advanced as what it does in this series, I would be willing to suspend my disbelief for such a concept because it's cool and I want to live in a world like that. But you have to really sell me on the idea that that's what's happening, or give some hints into how the mind actually interfaces with the machines at least, before I'd be able to fully buy into it. What really stumps me more than anything, though, is the hologram stuff. Where the hell are they coming from? Why can holograms just show up from thin air and be moved around and manipulated like this? I don't see any projectors anywhere, and I'm sure the characters aren't just, like, projecting shit from their pores or something. It confuses me because it might kind of make sense if this was explained as something that the characters can do with their powers, but it just seems so weird and unlikely. Why are these hologram windows presented literally as brow Browser tabs. Do we need browser controls for a computer that you operate with your mind? And what's more, if it really was all controlled with superpowers, then why does it seem to operate on a shared network like the internet? Believe it or not, I was able to come up with a couple of ideas that honestly would have justified some of these issues for me and gotten me to stop asking questions. Maybe the whole city is full of some kind of airborne particles which can be manipulated through technology, sort of like if the air itself was made up of pixels and the computer system is able to wire detect the pixels around them and project light onto them or something. It's far-fetched as fuck, but I came up with that idea in five seconds and it's a better justification than nothing. Better yet, what if the super-powered kids were just able to generate some kind of light using their powers and the computer in their brain projects itself onto the light like a monitor? I don't know. I'm trying so hard to justify this technology that I'm writing an entirely new story in my head, all because it hurts my brain to imagine that someone sat down and said, it's the future and people can make computer windows with their mind and no no one in the room raised their hands and asked them, how? I just can't believe how totally uncreative this entire setting is. The story is set a hundred years in the future and all that's changed is that you can now open Google Chrome on the go without having to bust out your 
phone? Why in the fuck does Ayato have to sign documents on paper? Why are those kids who filmed the fight scene in the episode holding the holograms that you control with your mind? Why do the characters sometimes sit in front of the screens like they're computer monitors when they can open and manipulate them anywhere? They only did one thing with the setting and they didn't even do it right! Then we've got the whole superpower thing and I don't even know what the fuck is going on with this. It seems like everyone's basically got the super speed and the super strength abilities, but the stuff they fight with is like some kind of energy material called prana. The school has a bunch of prana channeling weapons that they hand out on the basis of whether a student has strong compatibility with it, which seems like it was intended as a way for all of the characters to have different abilities. You know, make it so everyone's got certain weapons they're compatible with, and since it's heavily suggested that the weapons have some kind of mind of their own, I won't ask how that makes sense, we've basically gotten Evangelion situation, where each user is intrinsically tied to their weapon. Never mind that most of those weapons are just swords. But then there's also apparently a market for weapons outside of the school, given that Saya's father is a weapons developer, and Saya even uses several of her father's weapons, which seems reasonable, like maybe he knows how to make weapons that would be compatible with her, but then what about the weapons that he's trying to sell through her promotion? I'm not going to try to answer that because I'm already sure I've thought about this more than the writers. Moreover, certain characters seem to have their own unique abilities which aren't related to their weapons, like Eulis's fireballs, so I guess you can also manipulate Prana without the weapons? I looked it up on the Asterisk War wiki, and apparently, Eulis is a Strega, which is a certain type of female-only Genestella representing 1.8% of the race, which has an especially high ability to manipulate Prana, and each of them has their own random, unique abilities. Uh, I give up. I'm just gonna state the obvious here. Asterisk City is just a really shitty version of Academy City from a certain magical index. Academy City was the world's most advanced city, consisting primarily of schools which were dedicated to developing the scientifically enhanced superpowers of its students. It had the same kind of power ranking system, the same kind of pristinely beautiful city with a weirdly specific teenager-based focus, and it featured a mixture of magic and technology. Specifically, it had certain characters whose powers were considered to be the result of science, living in a world of incredible technological advancements that usually made sense, and then an entire secretive and conflicting culture of magicians. The story and characters were a bunch of goofy light novel cliches, but the setting was actually kind of cool, because unlike the Asterisk War, Index actually managed to use its cyberpunk trappings for one of the purposes that makes the genre interesting, portraying a world of chaos. One of the ideas behind many cyberpunk stories is that with the advancement of technology, the differences between individuals and how they interact with one another begin to lose coherence. People with power and technology at their disposal become increasingly alien, while the cultures below them bleed into one another and get left behind by the shifting cultural tide. As information technology joins people on the conscious level and the cultures of the physical world blend together, the entire world becomes a sort of chaotic, amorphous mess where everyone's sense of self and individuality is simultaneously pronounced and made irrelevant. You can't tell a robot from a human, but you can tell a rich man from a poor man, and and so on and so forth. Index doesn't really comment on any of those things, but at least it gets the melting pot right. Every single character has some kind of totally unique set of powers and circumstances, and the series constantly goes out of its way to explain random pieces of technology and artifacts of magic in as much detail as it possibly can. It pushes together a seemingly infinite number of different ideas into this one location and forces them all to play off of one another, while starring a main character whose own ability is seemingly unexplainable no 
matter which culture you ask. This setting is interesting because it's cool to see all of these different ideas and to imagine a world with such a chaotic kind of individuality between everyone inside of it. I also wrote a video about Do Da 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 and how that show basically did the same thing. Now, I'm not criticizing the Asterisk War for not being just like a certain magical index or for failing as a cyberpunk story. What I'm trying to show you is how all of the ideas which the series has for its setting, the dystopian society where everyone gets off on watching high schoolers fight, the combination of magic and technology in a next century world, and the corporate cutthroat combat culture, all of these ideas are at ends with the actual presentation of the setting. If you're gonna make a show about a fucked up dystopic world, you don't set it in a city that looks like a shining monument to positive human progress and fill it with characters who are all motivated by personal desires for achievement. It's hard to believe that there's anything wrong with this world when it looks like this and when its characters act like this. The only reason it even registers with us as viewers that the Phoenix Festa is a bad thing is because in our culture, watching a bunch of teenagers kill each other is wrong. Well, when it's happening in real life, and also because Eulis keeps telling us that the city is driven by disgusting greed, even though she herself is driven by her own desire for money. If you're gonna set a series over 100 years in the future, then its technological advancements need to make sense as the logical result of the human progress which has been going on for the previous three centuries. You can pretty easily do some research to learn what kind of technological advancements are expected to occur in the next 100 years, or even just copy the idea from a bunch of other near-future sci-fi stories, with the goal of creating a world that the audience could imagine being real one day. I don't care how much the moral structure of society has changed, I don't think anyone's vision of the future is that everything will be exactly the same except there's a logical holographic monitors everywhere and the occasional android. Lastly, if you're going to make a story about kids with superpowers, then explain how those powers work in some depth, and make sure that the powers are interesting and individual as it stands right now, there was no reason to make it so everyone had superpowers in the first place. You could have just given everyone a different kind of sword and it would have been exactly the same. Maybe come up with a better reasoning for why some kids can use different magic other than that they are the exact same as everyone else except stronger for no reason. And if you're going out of your way to include both magic and technology into your story, then make some clear distinctions between them so we feel like there's a reason for the presence of both elements. As it stands, there was no reason to make it so everyone had weapons in the first place. You could have just given everyone a different kind of superpower and it would be exactly the same. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the Asterisk War has one of the most boring settings that I've ever seen in a sci-fi action series, as well as one of the least comprehensible. And it's funny that I'm even talking about it because I probably wouldn't have noticed that much if I wasn't writing this analysis. I was so busy being annoyed by all the cliched characters, the complete lack of relevant story content and the baffling construction of scenes that it took until I was on my second go through of the series before I really considered how shitty the setting was. I haven't even started to cover the stuff that really bothers me, and you know what that means. Continued in part 7. 
It's time that we address the elephant in the room. The elephant so large that none of us even realized it was standing over us at first. Like that scene in that shitty Godzilla movie when the camera pans out and you realize they're all standing in Godzilla's footprint. It's time for us to look at Ayato Amagiri. Yeah, that's right, I actually learned his full name just for this. Ayato is quite possibly one of, if not the, single worst anime protagonist that I've ever seen. I know, that sounds sounds unbelievable. How, in a world with so many awful protagonists, can this guy be the worst? Well, to clarify, I'm not saying that he's the most hateable or the worst fit for the story that he's a part of. Rather, I think that he is one of the most incoherently constructed anime characters that I've ever thought about. And worse yet, it's not at all obvious. At a glance, you could probably name a hundred characters whom Ayato reminds you of. He's a ridiculously overpowered badass who solves everyone's problems and gets all the girls like Kirito and Onisama, and he's a sexless virginal weirdo like 90% of all harem protagonists. But the thing about Ayato is that it's not so much that he's just like one of those other characters, as it is that he's just like all of those other characters. Ayato Amagiri is a hideous Frankenstein monster of anime protagonists so baffling in its construction that if the creators told me that he was meant to be a parody of the typical light novel protagonist, then I'd be inclined to believe them, and to congratulate them on a job well done. Allow me to examine the patchwork of this monstrosity. Ayato's baseline state of being is that he's tired and bored. He sighs whenever he has to do anything or put up with anyone, and generally seems like he'd rather be taking a nap than doing whatever the show asks of him. This kind of attitude is pretty typical among light novel guys because it's a part of the image that the viewer is supposed to project itself onto. This sort of hipstery desire to not come off as a tryhard so that whenever you do something badass, it looks like you did it with no effort and without even really giving a shit. It's possible to make a great character following this sort of archetype. Yoshihiro Togashi seems to be a master of it. Yusuke Yurameshi was a punk kid who just wanted to relax and take life at his own pace, but the world was constantly asking more of him, and what made him endearing was to watch him mature into someone who gave a shit about the world around him. He learned to become that guy by getting the shit kicked out of him constantly, even in the process of being a badass cool guy. Kirua was a ridiculously powerful amoral assassin kid who couldn't give a shit about anyone except for his friend Gon, but the push and pull of realizing what kind of hardships come from caring about someone brought all sorts of emotions out of him. Of course, in both of these examples, Togashi came at the characters from the perspective of an older person who can see through all the bullshit that teenagers project about themselves and both criticize that attitude as well as show how those kids can grow up. The Asterisk War feels like it was actually written by a teenager with no self-awareness, writing a character who somehow manages to be the nicest, most helpful, most powerful, best guy ever, while still maintaining that standoffish, too cool to get involved attitude most of the time. Now, if you've been watching this show, then describing Ayato as I just have may seem like a mischaracterization. This is a guy whose primary motivation is that he's searching for a purpose in life, and who finds that purpose in deciding to protect his friend. He leaps into battle for his friends without hesitation, and is so dedicated to helping people that he jumped into a girl's window just to return her dropped handkerchief. He doesn't seem at all like the standoffish, too-cool-to-care type of guy, right? Well, that's the issue. He's not. For the 
the most part, Ayato's personality is more akin to a typical shonen protagonist. He's the type of guy who spent most of his life having a strong sense of morality drilled into his head by his older sister. He can't help himself but to step in and help people with their problems without a second thought, no matter how minor those problems might be. He's driven by a quest for purpose and is inspired by the purpose that he sees in the people around him. Everything about his upbringing and personality suggests a person who sees helping others as a part of who he is. So why is he so bored all the time? Why does he seem to find people so hard to deal with? If he's all about helping people, then why does helping people seem like such a hassle to him? This kind of dichotomy is present in a lot of light novel protagonists. Toma from Index is always presented as someone who considers it a hassle to deal with people, but in the end he can't stand to see them in trouble, so his morals end up tugging at him until he jumps in to help. Kirito was always presented as this sort of amoral misanthrope who didn't want to help people because he can't stand the pain of losing them, but for one reason or another he'd end up caring about people and fighting for them. But with these characters we at least understood that their morality was some kind of struggle which doesn't come innately to them. Each of these characters would rather be doing something else, but they get dragged into these situations by circumstance. Ayato is presented as though the same thing is true for him as well, but his personality and goals are totally at ends with that presentation. His main motivation is literally to protect people, and nothing about him would suggest that he's anything less than a kind-hearted, morally upstanding person, except for the fact that it also seems like doing anything is a huge pain in the ass to him. That's what I mean when I say that Ayato is a Frankenstein monster of light novel characters. He is somehow at once the big valiant hero who wants to fight for a purpose and protect the people he cares about while also being the jaded asshole who'd rather do anything other than fight or care. Another thing which Ayato has in common with his genre contemporaries is that he's ludicrously overpowered in comparison to everyone else in the show. We're not just talking about a guy who wins every fight that he gets into, we're talking about a guy who completely overwhelms most of his opponents, many of whom are established as the most powerful fighters in the city, even with severe limitations holding him back. In Ayato's introductory scene, he makes the fifth strongest fighter at his school look like a chump by easily deflecting all of her attacks and then saving her from an assassin. In episode 4, said fighter is pinned by another student whom, by the show's logic, ought to have been much weaker than her but never mind that, Ayato shows up and defeats him without taking a scratch and spends the entire battle carrying Eulis in one of his arms. Yeah, that shit happens. In episode 5, he loses to the most powerful fighter in the school because he gets distracted and forgets the rules of the battle, so in episode 7 he defeats her and takes her place as the number one. At least that fight seemed like it took a little bit of effort, but at this point Ayato has proven both the strongest fighter at his school and by that logic probably one of the top 10 fighters in the city. Bear in mind that all of this is Ayato's baseline power level. This guy hasn't spent any time beefing up or training or anything. No one at this school was competition for him in the first place. In episode 2, he tames the most powerful weapon that the school possesses without breaking a sweat. In preparation for the festa, it seems more like he's training Eulis to try to catch up to him more so than actually training himself to get better. But Ayato's power does come with a catch, as we learn in episode 4. Apparently, his older sister has put some kind of curse on him that limits his supposedly uncontrollable powers, and when he goes too far beyond those limits, then it causes 
causes him to crash in a painful burst. Allow me to detail all of the reasons that this is the worst excuse for a power limitation that I've ever heard. Number one, Ayato doesn't even lose control of his powers when unleashing them. It's possible that maybe his sister had intended to remove these limitations once he was old enough to master his powers, but either way, there is currently no consequence for using them. Number two, the problem that comes from using this power only appears after it's already been used. Ayato can potentially defeat any opponent using this power, and it will only affect him once the battle is over at an indeterminate time. Number three, the very first time that we're introduced to this limitation is after Ayato has already exceeded it. He says that he's never been able to use the power for as long as he did in that first battle, meaning that the limitation is flexible and can be broken to fit the situation. Number four, likewise, the source of power is so ill-defined that it could potentially grow infinitely. We have no reason to believe that Ayato can't just continually unleash more and more power to match the situation based on how motivated he is or whatever. Ayato's limitation barely even qualifies as a limitation. If anything, it seems to suggest that he can be as powerful as he needs to be at any given time, so he'll always be able to turn the tide in any battle with the odds against him. Moreover, he barely even needs this power in the first place to conquer most of his opponents. It would be laughable to consider that Ayato may ever be in danger during any of his encounters unless he had to fight someone with the same powers that he has, and even then it's hard to imagine that anyone relevant will ever be in danger in this show. Now, I don't doubt that these limitations are going to come into play in the future battles to try and add to the tension. In fact, I've read some spoilers so I know that to be true. My point is more that this is how Ayato is established. As someone so much more powerful than everyone else that even his limitations are suggestive of larger capabilities. And going by the spoilers I've read, his power level is only going to get even more utterly insane as the series continues. This character takes the wish fulfillment aspects of the light novel protagonist to a far away extreme, which is why he only gets weirder when we start looking at his sex life. There seems to be a trend in light novels lately of filling the main character's harem with girls who would otherwise be the strongest characters in the story if not for the main guy. The wish fulfillment aspect of this is obvious. You get to date all of the hottest, coolest, most powerful women around while still outdoing all of them and keeping your position as an alpha dude. At the end of the day, when the chips are down, you get to swoop in and save the girls like the big hero that you are, but you don't have to feel bad about being attracted to a damsel in distress because she could totally kick anyone ass on a good day. It's all about striking that balance between having so-called strong female characters while also promoting the male power fantasy that young guys who watch this stuff are looking for. Naturally, all of the relevant female characters are attracted to Ayato, in this case usually for no reason whatsoever. It's almost creepy the way this show just takes for granted that any woman with a speaking role would have to be a part of the main character's harem without even really convincing us of why any of them would care about him beforehand. Nevertheless, you could reasonably make the case for why these girls might fall for him, and given the type of show that this is, it would hardly be shocking that they do, but that's not the part that makes him weird. The weird part, rather, is how Ayato keeps his distance from these girls. Once again, it's something that the show takes for granted because it's a common trope in anime that the main characters remain virginal weirdos for the majority of the series. But the way that this show presents this aspect of the relationships is what makes it come across as strange. To explain what I mean, I present this scene from the start of episode 3. Claudia calls Ayato Ayato up to her room in the middle of the night and deliberately times it so that she's just gotten out of the shower when he enters. After several minutes of Claudia showing off her body and Ayato clearly checking her out, Claudia outright comes on to him, basically propositioning him for sex and placing his hand on her breast. Ayato runs away.
Now, I'm not going to deny the possibility that perhaps Ayato is uncomfortable with the idea of sex, or even that he's just not ready for that kind of contact. I'm not necessarily saying that any of this behavior is unreasonable, or even that it's out of character. I just don't quite get it. Ayato is an unstoppably badass fighter. He's confident, somewhat outgoing, and has no trouble talking to people he's never met, including women. He's not awkward in the slightest for the most part, and he seems to get along with all of the girls just fine. He's clearly attracted to all of them, and he gets flustered when he sees them naked, but it seems like he gets that way out of something like a moral obligation. Like, when he catches them undressing or soaking wet, he feels bad that he saw them in a compromising way without their permission. But then we come to this scene, where Claudia is clearly coming on to him and basically asking him to do something. Even if Ayato wasn't interested in doing anything with her, it would have been reasonable to at least say something or talk about it, but instead he just runs away all flustered like he saw something he shouldn't have. If I were Claudia, I'd probably feel insulted after this guy just checked me out for three minutes and then took off without saying a word. I've thought long and hard about why the character would be written this way, and I think I kind of understand. See, when I was 13, a time during which I probably would have enjoyed a show like this, I was old enough to know that I found women attractive, but I hadn't quite yet gotten my head around the concept of sex. I still felt like it was some sort of adult thing that I wasn't really supposed to know about, even though I vaguely understood that it was something which I wanted. Since that was the age that I first got big into anime, I can actually remember things like how I was always afraid to buy anime with full frontal nudity in it because I was ashamed of it, even though I was always checking out the cute girl and the shows that I did watch. Around that time when I was acclimating to the idea of sexuality, I think I would have been totally into a show like this, where the sexual content is evident, yet kind of immature and childish. I may have been less able to relate to a hero who actually had sex, but I could project myself onto one who was surrounded by it. It's because of that experience that I understand why Ayato ran away from Claudia's sexual advancements. It really has nothing to do with what makes sense for the characters, and everything to do with what works for the audience. The kind of kid who looks for the sort of wish fulfillment that this show provides is probably pretty young, and probably a virgin. In spite of their desire to be an all-powerful badass and the object of affection for a bunch of beautiful women, the idea of what they'd actually do in a moment of intimacy is still alien to them. What makes this particular scene so weird, though, is that something like this even happened in this way in a show of this nature. Sure, harem characters find themselves in sexual situations all the time, but there's usually some kind of reason, however stupid, for why the situation doesn't amount to anything. Usually it's because the girl is embarrassed. Sometimes it's because the guy is outright not interested in in the girl or because her personality is really extreme and the situation has gotten out of hand. Sometimes there's like a rule in place that prohibits the characters from going any further. Sometimes there's one girl that the main character is most attracted to or otherwise has to answer to, or he likes all of the girls and is afraid of choosing one of them. This scene with Ayato running from Claudia doesn't have any logical thread to it. Ayato hasn't shown any affection for any of the girls yet, and as far as we know, he's not particularly interested in any one of them over the others. There isn't any circumstance for why he wouldn't be able to do anything with her, and it even seems like he's attracted to her physically. Her personality isn't very extreme, and she certainly isn't embarrassed about it, so what is he running from? Again, I'm not saying that it's totally unreasonable to make this a part of his character, but what I got out of this scene was not that Amagiri Ayato is afraid of sex. What I got out of it is that this is what's expected to happen in a harem show. It's been so normalized that the fanservice scenes in a series like this won't lead 
lead to anything, that we're not even expected to question it when the main character runs out on a sexual advance. It's just how these things work. Once again, this is what I mean when I say that Ayato is a Frankenstein monster of generic anime protagonists. His character isn't constructed in a way that logically fits together, he's just a random combination of everything that these kinds of characters are known for. He's a cosmic badass, but he's also a shy virgin. He's the nicest person in the world, but he's also too cool to care about anything. He's all of the wish fulfillment tropes that every other character embodies all rolled up into one guy that no one can actually relate to. Even Kirito, a character that I've been ragging on constantly for the past year and a half, was consistent enough to help out only when he felt he had to, and to have sex with the girl who climbed into his bed. This Ayato guy is so confusing that I can't even imagine what he'd be like if I threw him into another situation. Would he run away from Eulis if she came onto him like that? I honestly have no idea. There's a line in episode 3 where Eulis says to Ayato, You're unfathomable, aren't you? And I couldn't agree more. In fact, I would honestly be willing to accept that to some extent, Ayato was designed to be that way. For being the main character of the story, the show tries its damnedest to make him seem mysterious, and to disclose as little as it can about his past, though it kind of does that with everyone. Enough of the characters seem to regard him as something different that I can't help wondering if he's supposed to just be this huge weirdo. I'm a lot more inclined to believe that he's meant to be someone for young guys who are both morally upright but also want to be seen as giant badasses to project themselves onto, but this is one character who's managed to stump me so hard that I'm willing to listen to some creative intent if I can get it. Of course, even if I did accept that Ayato's weirdness was intentional, it wouldn't stop him from being totally unlikable or make this show any less of a slog to watch. I've still got plenty of little details to dissect about the coming episodes, so the videos must go on. Continued in part 8. But wait, there's more! Part 8 of the Asterisk War Sucks is probably going to take a little bit of time to make because it's a bit longer than part 7. So if you didn't quite get your Asterisk War Sucks fix yet, then check the description because I've put a link to a Google Drive video where me and my brother Victor reacted to episodes 3 and 4 of the Asterisk War. This video was recorded when I had written parts 1 through 7 of the Asterisk War, but I had not yet started editing any of the videos, and Victor had not seen any of my videos about it, he didn't know anything about the show, I just told him he had to watch it with me, uh, because I thought it would be funny, and it is absolutely hilarious. So I highly recommend checking out this video, it's really funny, definitely the more entertaining and hilarious version of the Asterisk War sucks. Go check it out down in the description, and uh, have a nice day.